Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a lot to cram in in our time together, but in a slightly different way, this being the height of summer. If it's okay with all of you, we're going to have a bonus this week, which is I'm going to take one of the uh, episodes that have been available for those who kindly subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics and play it to you. There have been a whole range of different series, and I'm going to pluck out one episode from, it's going to be for the next three weeks, this, uh, uh, three of the series. So in a minute, I'm going to introduce one from the Troublemakers series and also reflect more widely on troublemakers. Uh, You know what I mean by troublemakers, those who stir it in politics. Uh, I feel mixed about a lot of troublemakers. I don't know what you feel, but I'll I'll reflect on that in a minute. Um, I'm in quite a rush because we're on the move. Uh, This is very rock and roll. We're heading up to Edinburgh. I don't mean the royal we, by the way. my wife and I, actually. Uh, We're going via the Lake District for a couple of days, then uh, Newcastle, and then up to Edinburgh for the shows which begin on Sunday, August the 13th. And for those of you who do subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, as I mentioned last week, we're recording one of the shows. Uh, I think I said then it's it, it, it's massive. It's like recording the Rolling Stones or Madonna when she's well enough to perform. That's closer to Madonna because she's a one-woman act, isn't she, uh, like me? So, uh, yeah, on Patreon, you'll be getting for the August bonus a live show, um, which is a kind of, a, a, say, technically, astronomically demanding. Um, but I hope, on the whole, you're going to be up there because Edinburgh, I'm told, is already buzzing and should be really on fire by August the 13th. And it's going to be a different show every day. And if I have time, the link will be uh, to get the tickets will be on the blurb for this podcast and uh, on, of course, the Edinburgh Fringe website. And it's 11 o'clock in the morning, so you can start your day with rock and roll with a cup of coffee as we delve deep. Um, And there's going to be a whole range of different themes uh, that we're going to explore there. And if you come to them all, it's like a box set. And by the end, we've solved everything. That's the idea. Last year, a couple of Americans came to virtually every show, and I said to them at the end, have we made sense of it all? Have we, you know, those of us who've been here from the beginning to the end of the Edinburgh Festival, have we each day accumulatively made sense of it all? And one of them just looked up and said, nope. And they were right. But this time we're going to. This time we're going to. And if you can't make it, uh, for the first time for a very long time, actually, Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place on September the 13th, where um, uh, we will be delving deep at the start of a new political year. I think by then we'll have had a cabinet reshuffle, a shadow cabinet reshuffle. The party conferences will be looming. And they will be, I'm pretty sure, the pre-election party conferences. Um, So that would be King's Place on the 13th, if and even if you can make it to Edinburgh, that will be a different one down in London. So thank you for all of that. Now, as we're driving up to the Lake District, let me, I'm not driving as I'm doing this, uh, 
let me briefly reflect on troublemakers before playing you the Enoch Powell example from the Troublemakers series. There were quite a few, Tony Benn, Nigel Farage, Robin Cook, uh, kind of just made it as a troublemaker resigning over Iraq. Um, yeah, I, there's a, I feel a certain ambivalence about troublemakers. I am fascinated by them and drawn to them. And I sense quite deeply, actually, that at the moment, British politics is missing uh, troublemakers. Those who are deep, I don't mean Farage, you know, who uh, is kind of really a branch of show business. But um, I do mean the Bens, the Powells, uh, certainly the Cooks, um, who feel principled enough uh, to forget about ambition or the hunger for a job in the cabinet and pursue an idea or a principle and value principles above the pursuit of jobs. On the whole, I think they are healthy in politics. Um, I say that sort of tentatively, uh, and this is where my ambivalence comes in. You know, I was brought up uh, on the politics, you know, as a school kid and as a student, watching uh, Labour Party conferences when they were live on BBC Two and were just a kind of civil war live on air. And I remember in a sort of naive way being baffled, thinking, how do all those taking part with all that anger think it's going to help Labour at all? And of course it didn't. Uh, it was a disaster. And I understood the control freakery of the new Labour era, the need in a broadly hostile media to have one message and everyone delivering that message, and for that message to be composed by those at the very top who would be ultimately uh, accountable and responsible for delivering that message on peak time television and every other outlet. So, so, so that's the argument for troublemakers just being trouble. You know, there's no doubt Labour lost elections because people followed their principled convictions to the point of noisy anger so that the party was impossible to lead and divided parties don't win elections. But then you look at Labour now or the early phase of the Johnson era and you just think what was missing were troublemakers. Johnson's cabinet, that pathetic, subservient, docile cabinet, some of whom were aware of his deep flaws, some of whom knew that uh, Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost were negotiating a Brexit deal with calamitous consequences. They did nothing. It needed troublemakers standing up to these dangerous lightweights who had floated to the top of British politics. Um, and similarly, you look at the Labour Party now with uh, a leadership uttering whatever is found to be popular with focus groups and disowning anything that is found to be unpopular in focus groups. And you think, oh, how this party could benefit from those who were committed with deep 
convictions and principles and willing at times to articulate them. And uh, they've kind of been driven out of politics. I mentioned Farage earlier. I think it's quite significant that he's never been elected to the House of Commons and has not been for a very long time part of a mainstream Conservative... Uh, well, it would have been the Conservative Party, and he was a Conservative. But he hasn't been for a very, very long time and has never really been willing to face responsibilities. You know, when after the Brexit referendum, the first thing Farage did was to resign as UKIP leader rather than continue with the unglamorous hard grind of trying to decide what Brexit was and to negotiate it accordingly. It's much more fun doing what he did, which was to present on LBC and now GB News and for people to tell him how great he was when they phoned in. But the more substantial troublemakers were absolutely part of one or two of the bigger political parties. And some, of course, made it to the Cabinet. Uh, Tony Benn being a fascinating example of someone who began uh, in a very orthodox way. You know, he was in the 50s, the great sort of, and to some extent the early 60s, uh, the great modernising Labour politician. And Harold Wilson saw him in, in, in such a light. And he advised Gatesgill on how to present himself on television in the late 50s and early 60s. And yet he moved to the left, but he never resigned from the Cabinet even though Harold Wilson, after the 1975 referendum on Europe, demoted him. But after they lost in 1979, uh, he never went back into the cabinet, obviously, because Labour were out of power for 18 years. And he, for two years uh, on the back benches, 79 to 81, fought this most extraordinary, mesmerising, dissenting campaign which uh, peaked with the deputy leadership contest uh, in uh, well the result was in September 1981 and although there is an argument that it kind of wrecked the Labour Party for some time it erupted with kind of interesting ideas and thoughts and somehow there must be a way through perhaps in which people can raise ideas and policies that arise from them, which aren't necessarily in accordance with, say, the kind of uh, cautious, technocratic instincts of a nervy leadership on either side, um, without kind of completely wrecking a party's chances of winning a general election. I don't know, it's tricky. But I sense we miss them, even though I am aware of the damage they cause. And of course, in Enoch Powell's case, it wasn't just internal damage, although there was one heck of a lot of that. But anyway, for those of you who haven't heard it before, I think it is an interesting example of the impact of a troublemaker, in some ways limited. Uh, Powell never got into the cabinet. But in other ways, um, well, listen and see what you, you think. So this was, say, part of a series of troublemakers. Uh, and then I'll pop up at the end of it again for a few more observations. So here it is. This is the uh, troublemaker in the Troublemaker series, Enoch Powell.
Hello and welcome to episode two of this Patreon podcast bonus series, The Troublemakers. And I'm going to reflect on Enoch Powell, who definitely meets the definition of troublemaker. Indeed, he is arguably the only troublemaker to have had a decisive impact on a general election, certainly the only elected one to do so. Nigel Farage would have credible claim to have had an impact on various general elections. Uh, But as we will reflect, Powell had a very direct impact on one, and it was pivotal and arguably changed the course of modern British political history. It certainly changed the course of the 1970s. Powell had, in some ways, a lot in common with his troublemaking peer group on the labour wing of politics, uh, most specifically Tony Benn and Michael Foote. Um, They had one thing specifically in common. They were all brilliant orators. Uh, They could hold the House of Commons. They could work a room as brilliantly as any successor in subsequent generations who became famous for oratory. And it was a big factor in their public appeal. Powell was more mannered as an orator than Tony Benn or Michael Foote. He spoke with a apparent slight breathlessness and paused theatrically as he moved towards his denouement in each speech in which he cast a spell over his audience. Tony Benn was more uh, vibrant and witty and passionate, and Michael Foote had a curiously hesitant style about the future of the country, but each of them in their different ways were mesmeric. And uh, I saw Powell speak, and although it was, in a way, a very conscious performance, it was uh, highly effective. And I can understand why MPs, when they saw he was speaking in the Commons on their televisions in their offices, rushed in to hear what he had to say. The other common links, of course, with Ben and Foote were uh, love of the House of Commons. Again, curious, they loved the um, hall where you could speak and wow a packed audience. And quite a few orators or people who roused the passions of such crowds, like Jeremy Corbyn, for example, weren't so thrilled with the Commons. Ben, Foote and Powell loved the Commons, and that had a big influence in terms of their common views about Europe, which were hugely significant, and also in terms, certainly with Foote and Powell, their scepticism about various forms of parliamentary reform. And quite often, in the late 60s and early 70s, Powell and Foote, in some ways an unlikely alliance, would work together to challenge proposals for Lord's reform or other parliamentary reforms, which they felt might threaten the uh, sovereignty of the Commons. And Ben 
when referring to Powell, quite often referred to him by his first name, said, I've talked with Enoch about this and, and so on. There was a mutual respect between the troublemaker on the right of the Tory party and some of those on the left of the Labour Party. Powell was extraordinary uh, because of the range of his learning and his passion for uh, the Greek classics, German, music. He contemplated at one point studying at the Royal Academy of Music. He had a range, speak many languages. He, he learned Greek when he was at school. He soon learned German. He travelled like a lot of that generation of politicians did around Europe. And I think when he arrived in the House of Commons, uh, and he was an MP throughout the 50s, and then, of course, continued as a Tory MP until 1974, February 74. He then returned as a Unionist MP, somewhat bizarrely, in October 1974. But during that period, he coincided with some of the real heavyweights, uh, Dennis Healy, Roy Jenkins, Tony Crossland, uh, from the Tory side, and Rab Butler, Ian Gilmore, uh, Macmillan, on the uh, Tory side, all incredibly well read. Anyone who has read Dennis Healy's memoir will be in awe of him. Uh, by the time, frankly, he reaches about 23, he has crammed more in his life, Healy, by the age of 23 than most of us would do in a 100 lifetimes. He had read everything. He spoke many languages. He had cycled through Europe uh, round about instantly the same time as Heath was doing his journeys into Europe. He knew, of course, Iris Murdoch, who was a contemporary at Oxford. He understood music. He wrote poetry. But I think in terms of range and depth of learning, Powell topped Healy. Um, he, he, he did little else than study at school and at university around the clock got the appropriate qualifications that such intense study might produce. And there was clearly, with this doggedness, a kind of sensitive streak. He wrote poetry, and as I say, he found music uh, fascinating, and understood it like he understood Greek. He wasn't a show-off about his learning. He didn't go around quoting extracts of some Greek classic like Boris Johnson did and does. Um, it was there uh, for all to see without it having to be unsubtly displayed. He became an academic for a time, which seemed a sort of natural extension from his period of intense study at Cambridge. And he became an academic actually in Australia in the 1930s, but was watching like a hawk the developments in Europe, inevitably. He was a passionate opponent of appeasement and was one of those, many like him, who became partly defined by appeasement. But Powell was complicated, although absolutely rooted on the right of his party. He had a sort of Catholic range of tastes when it came not just for these, to these Labour politicians who he liked, like Michael Foote, but within the Tory party too. He was a great admirer of Rab Butler 
in the 50s and 60s, and indeed never forgave Harold Macmillan for outmaneuvering Butler in the post-Suez leadership battle when Eden uh, dramatically faded from the political scene after the Suez crisis. He was a fan of Butler, and yet Butler was the most liberal of Tory reformers, and indeed in the 1930s, as a junior minister, had been involved in giving India a degree of self-government, something that Butler believed in uh, passionately. Then, of course, became the author of the Education Act and was a Liberal Home Secretary in the 50s as well. Powerless say never forgave Macmillan for defeating Butler. So there were nuances in Powell, even though his position in some key areas became dogged and, of course, in the case of race, grotesque, although that wasn't clear, uh, certainly in the 1950s. One thing was absolutely clear. Powell was a pure purist when it came to markets and monetarism. Uh, He was a Thatcherite long before Margaret Thatcher. And of course, uh, you'll be unsurprised to hear, and you probably know, Thatcher was a great admirer of Powell's. Powell was more equivocal about her. But Powell, once he had formed a set of beliefs, became very dogged. And in terms of monetarism, he was rigid. And in really a defining moment for the Tories in the late 1950s, though they still had a few more years of power in them, quite a few actually, and another election victory in them, Powell resigned from the government as a Treasury Minister early in 1958 uh, because of its what he regarded as its profligate spending plans. Its significance was that it was the equivalent, really, of Nye Bevan and Harold Wilson resigning when Hugh Gateskill introduced uh, prescription charges earlier in that decade. Gateskill did it partly, he said, uh, because he needed the money to increase defence spending. And there in that divide and the resignation of Bevan and Wilson, you had a schism forming in the Labour Party that remains unresolved and was uh, dominant for decades to come. Does a Labour government have to show itself to be tough on defence with substantial defence spending? By the way, many of that period thought um, defence spending became too lavish under uh, Gateskill's watch. He was at the Treasury determining levels of public spending. Or was the NHS to be protected permanently, free at the point of use in all its manifestations, including prescriptions. And Wilson and Bevan showed their commitment to the NHS. I think both, by the way, sincere, unsurprising with Bevan, he created the NHS. Wilson retrospectively was viewed more suspiciously, but I think he meant it at the time. Uh, Which way do you go? And in a way, Powell, in the way he behaved, was... Uh, acting out the scenes that were to be played out more vividly in government in the early 1980s. When Thatcher characterised the debate, she was Prime Minister by then, of course, as between the wets and the dries. 
Thatcher emphatically a dry, and the wets were those in her cabinet who were against the spending cuts and the rigid attachment uh, to monetarism that marked the first phase of Thatcherism. And that wets versus dries, that really began with Powell being the preeminent dry politician, resigning along with some others, uh, Peter Thornycroft, over public spending plans. And to use the Thatcherite labels, Powell was the dry against the likes of Macmillan, who were wet, wet, wet. It was also really the last great cry from that period of One Nation Toryism. Macmillan prevailed, and that's why Powell resigned, because um, Macmillan was absolutely determined to see through the spending plans uh, that he thought were necessary. And although One Nation Toryism had a sort of partial revival under Ted Heath, it was never complete. Powell was one of the reasons why it was never completed. Uh, That resignation marked him out as one of those politicians who preferred the role of troublemaker to power. Uh, Some would do anything to stay in the cabinet. We've seen that recently when in the Tory leadership contest of last summer, you had cabinet ministers backing one person. Then when that person fell, or even when in the case of Sunak, he was still standing, some of them switched to trust simply because they wanted her to give her a cabinet post. Powell evidently wasn't like that. He was happy on the back benches, causing trouble, although he would see it as a more noble calling than merely causing trouble. I think he would happily accept the label troublemaker. His relationship with Heath was never harmonious. They put up with each other. Powell didn't really respect him greatly. And Heath was wary of Powell because Powell had qualities Heath could never, ever hope to acquire. Heath, who, by the way, became a Conservative leader after they lost the election in 1964, Alec Douglas Holmes stood down and Heath took over. Um, And it was the first election to be where the leader was elected by Conservative MPs. They viewed each other warily. Heath was not an orator, to put it mildly. He was an awkward public performer. And even though, as I said at the beginning, Powell was not a wholly natural speaker and wasn't actually brilliant at the TV interview, which was becoming the big test because he was mannered in the interview as he was on a stage. But as I say, he could cast a spell over an audience. Heath could never do it. And Powell had a following within the Tory parliamentary party and indeed in an early sign of the Red Wall in some Labour areas uh, that Heath could never, ever reach. So the two danced awkwardly together in the opposition years in the 1960s. But of course, the moment of total breakdown uh, between him and uh, Heath was over the issue of immigration and race. It's interesting that in both the 1964 and 1966 elections, Powell, as a Tory candidate, made clear that the issue at the top of his list of concerns, and he said of that of the voters, was immigration. Now, interestingly, at the time, that was seen either as freakish or sinister. Uh, It didn't command uh, a wide audience or a great deal of coverage, actually, at that point, the mid-1960s. 
But it is a measure of how things have changed that uh, just about every politician acknowledges that rightly or wrongly, immigration is right at the top of voters' concerns. At the time, Powell focused on it. It just seemed slightly odd or sinister. But of course, he became famous, notorious for this theme with his uh, Rivers of Blood speech delivered in Birmingham in uh, 1968. And he knew what he was doing. It wasn't as if he thought he was delivering a speech that would make no impact. He said to, um, by the way, a play was made around this relationship. Uh, He said to uh, a local newspaper editor, Clem Jones, who, by the way, Clem Jones, he edited the... uh, Wolverhampton Express and Star and became close to Powell, of course, who was uh, uh, one of their local MPs in in Jones's patch. He was the father, Clem Jones, of Nick Jones, the BBC correspondent, who some of you might remember. Nick Jones was the Labour correspondent during the miners' strike in the 80s and then became a BBC political correspondent. I knew Nick Jones well. Anyway, his father, Clem Jones, was the local paper editor and uh, a rather kind of moving play was produced about partly their relationship. Anyway, Powell said to Jones before he made that notorious speech, I'm going to make a speech at the weekend, and it's going to go up fizz like a rocket. But whereas all rockets fall to earth, this one is going to stay up. He knew what he was doing. And what he was doing was uh, shocking in its language uh, and in its uh, racism. It wasn't just about the economics, it was about the social impact, and it was written so vividly. I remember uh, when I was political editor at the New Statesman, this must have been in um, uh, 1998, the editor of the New Statesman, Ian Hargreaves, said, why don't we do an assessment of the Rivers of Blood speech by Enoch Powell on the 30th anniversary, which it would have been in 1998? And so Ian said, yeah, let's have a look at it. Let's have a look at the speech. And he read it in a car. I was with him in his office with sort of disbelief. He said, it's, it's, it's 30 times worse than I thought it was going to be. And I thought it was going to be bad. It was became the Rivers of Blood speech, as you know, because he said... In that speech, uh, as I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. That tragic and intractable phenomenon, which we watch with horror on the other side of the Atlantic, but which there is interwoven with the history and existence of the states itself, is coming upon us here by our own volition and our own neglect indeed it has all but come in numerical terms it will be of american proportions long before the end of the 20th century only resolute and urgent action will avert it even now whether there will be the public will to demand and obtain that action i do not know all i know is that to see and not to speak would be the great betrayal That image of the rivers of blood, of course, caused mayhem and incidentally uh, generated all kinds of manifestations of uh, local examples of uh, racial hatred. And Heath sacked him. 
That was not the most straightforward thing for Heath to do, but of course he did it because Heath was ultimately a figure of uh, integrity and um, and some depth. And, you know, the reason it was tricky is Heath would have known. And Heath, at this point, he had lost an election in 1966 by a massive margin. He was in quite a vulnerable place. And he would have known that this speech and power appealed to quite a section of the Tory party. But there are sometimes events that happen where leaders can't make those multi-layered calculations. Uh, Heath was as shocked as others and and sacked him but of course that um severed all relations between powell and heath and when heath won in uh, june 1970 unexpectedly it was powell uh, more than anyone else who was the great troublemaker for heath on the uh, back benches the trouble it took two forms most famously for Europe, but there was another, in a way, uh, which tormented Heath almost more, actually, than Europe, um, because it was, in the end, what brought him down. Powell um, was a great free marketeer. He believed in the purity of markets. The great defining event of the 1970s was the quadrupling of oil prices by OPEC in 1973 as a protest against uh, Western powers supporting Israel in what was called the Six-Day War uh, against various Arab states. And OPEC responded by whacking up oil prices. And as is often the case in these sort of global crises, it was Britain that was affected more than many others. And the OPEC price rise coincided with a period when the miners were famously fluctuating uh, or rather exerting their muscular strength by striking for high levels of uh, pay rises, much higher than other uh, unions were making in the at that point in the early 70s. And Heath decided um, in, in not a straightforward way that he would have to take on the NUM. The reason why it wasn't straightforward was that every now and again, Heath came close to an agreement with the miners. He got on quite well with the uh, general secretary of the NUM, Joe Gormley. And Joe Gormley was to write later that he trusted Heath more than Wilson and respected Heath more than Wilson. Whether Gormley was right in that perception uh, is not really relevant. That was his impression. But Heath never did get there and in the end, of course, called an election in the depths of the winter of uh, early 1974, posing the question, who governs Britain? Powell supported the miners and he did so on market principles. He intervened repeatedly in debates with Heath increasingly besieged, sitting there during, you know, three-day weeks and all the other things that went on in that period. Powell said, with oil now at these much higher price levels, the value of the miner in the market has gone up and they must be paid accordingly. So Heath was not only taking on a very wily Harold Wilson, who was playing all sorts of games to trap Heath um, quite often successfully, he was facing Enoch Powell from the backbenches. And then, dramatically, 
when Heath had called the election, on the final day that old Parliament was sitting before the election campaign, Powell stood up and announced he would not be standing as a Conservative candidate in that election. He wanted to go off and campaign mainly about Europe at that particular point. Because that was the other key issue where Powell tormented Heath. Heath did what uh, Macmillan tried and failed to do, what Harold Wilson tried and failed to do. He got Britain into the what was then known as the common market. Uh, it was his greatest achievement, whether you are anti or pro-European. It was uh, an exercise of willfulness, diplomacy, mastering great complex detail, but he got Britain in. And Powell was one of the most ferocious opponents, along with then his allies on the left of the Labour Party, uh, Ben Foote, Barbara Castle, Peter Shaw, not that Peter Shaw was that much on the left, but he was certainly anti-Britain going into the common market. And Powell was uh, quite clever. He, of course, focused on the substance of the issue and what he regarded as the uh, threat to the sovereignty of the elected UK parliament, on which he was more forensic and uh, skilled than his equivalents in the Brexit era. But he also focused on the process, and process is much easier to argue about. He said that Heath took Britain in without consulting the British people. That's what he focused his onslaughts in the House of Commons on more than anything else. It should have happened via a general election or referendum, according to Powell. He had quite a lot of support on the Labour benches for that, and it of course became, in that Parliament, official Labour Party policy to hold a referendum on Britain's membership of the then common market. Now, Wilson had adopted a referendum uh, because he um, could see no other way of uniting his cap uh, shadow cabinet then and the rest of the party. The party was split, a majority opposing Britain's membership, but a very prominent minority being passionate supporters of Britain's membership. Tony Benn proposed a referendum. Wilson was wary at first, but backed it. And then, characteristically, he did something clever and, in a way, shows how you can use the proposition of a referendum on Europe to your advantage. Jeremy Corbyn, in 2019, uh, tried to use the offer of a referendum to his advantage, and, of course, it went catastrophically wrong. But Wilson bumped into Powell a couple of times in the build-up to the February 74 election. And they talked about the referendum. And Wilson said, you know, Enoch, whatever happens, we're going to hold the referendum uh, and there will be a chance to vote out. Wilson never said what he was going to do, but he pledged this referendum. And for Powell, this was decisive. And during that cold, dark election of February 1974. You can hear the full story in an earlier bonus Patreon podcast on general elections. Uh, Powell gave some speeches, in which uh, mainly in big rallies in the East Midlands, where he had a constituency, and uh, told the audiences to vote Labour. 
uh, because of uh, the offer of the referendum on Europe. Now, there have been debates since about the degree to which Powell's intervention blew that election for Heath. And you can never measure these things wholly precisely. But what you can say is that it was uh, another unexpected disruptive moment in a campaign for Heath, which had quite a few of these unexpected disruptive moments. To have one of your most charismatic politicians not only standing, but then telling his followers, of which there were many, to vote Labour, is not exactly an endorsement of the uh, Tory party leadership as they seek to win an election. And famously, Heath didn't win that election. He only just lost by five seats. They actually won more votes than Labour, but lost by five seats. And Powell had played his part. And of course, then, ironically, Labour did hold the referendum. And in a way, Wilson outwitted Powell too, because he won it for those who wanted to stay in the common market by a big majority. But that campaign was in some ways more remarkable than the Brexit referendum in 2016 because of the weightiness of both sides. They had big figures and those campaigning for out were, you know, Powell, Ben, Foote and people like that. And those campaigning for in were Jenkins, Shirley Williams uh, and people of that kind of uh, stature and status. Uh, and it, it was uh, an intense and articulate uh, debate where instantly all the issues, including sovereignty, and, and were discussed and mythology arose later that they weren't explored fully, they were. And at that point, Britain voted to stay in. Britain had changed big time by 2016. Powell, by then, the referendum was in 1975, was back in the House of Commons. But he was back in as a unionist. He was a passionate unionist. He had a fascination with the politics of Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, he knew the history intimately. And broadly, he spoke on matters uh, related to Northern Ireland, but by no means exclusively. Uh, he became a significant figure in the early years of Margaret Thatcher, intervening to broadly support her on economic policy. And she was greatly comforted when he did. As I say, she was a great admirer of his. And also, at times, to cause trouble for her as well. He remained the troublemaker. Famously, uh, when uh, the Argentinian Junta invaded uh, the Falklands, in the uh, spring of 1982, there was a debate in the House of Commons on a Saturday, signifying the scale of the emergency. And Powell stood up and in effect said, this would really be the test for the Iron Lady to see whether she had the metal. And basically he said, uh, if she doesn't uh, recapture the island, she should go. So he retained an influence, but it was from a very odd perch emphatically no longer in the Conservative Party, but still in the Commons in his role as a unionist. Was Powell a racist? In a way, the question is too crude. Um, that speech certainly was, uh, the Rivers of Blood speech. He was a figure of great depth. He wasn't, in some respects, an English exceptionalist, 
uh, like uh, Johnson is and uh, one or two other uh, senior Brexiteers who think, having been brought up in Eton, that Britain kind of still rules the waves and is world-beating. He was never like that, for example, after Suez. He was quite a logical figure in some respects. After Suez, uh, Powell concluded that Britain was no longer a world power and needed to adapt its foreign policies and its place in the world accordingly. Now, you know, in some ways that's a statement of the obvious, but in British foreign policy, that's quite a nuanced position where British exceptionalism quite often is paramount. But in his obsession with a kind of certain form of Englishness and in his alarm at people coming here to work, uh, many of them much needed, of course. It's the same debate now about free movement and so on. He was utterly intolerant, insensitive, and that lapsed into a form of, at times, crude racism. And the other thing about Powell being a troublemaker, although that did give him, at times, considerable influence, it would be wrong to say it had a direct impact on Thatcherism because Thatcher had already formed a view about Thatcherism. It meant that Powell was never really tested like a lot of these troublemakers, by power. He was fleetingly a minister. On the whole, was an orator on the sidelines, where you are revered by some. You can create an atmosphere. And in the late 60s, Powell created in some places a terrible, violent atmosphere. But you don't have the degree of power that some who opt for the more direct route of cabinet government and staying in cabinet. And I don't think, really, he had the degree of influence that Tony Benn subsequently had, although, uh, especially on the Tory party, um, because Benn's fascination with accountability went deeper than Powell's. Um, But there is an argument to be made that both the Powell-Benn obsession with sovereignty, democracy, where power lies, has prevailed in the debate over Brexit. But he was a troublemaker who ended up in a very odd party, for him, uh, an English Tory through and through in his early years. The great weight of his learning still did not prevent him at times from being the crudest of troublemakers. So there we are. That was the uh, Enoch Powell episode of Troublemakers. And um, yeah, as, as I was listening to it, I kind of thought again about Obviously, power was a destructive force in many ways. But in his unpredictable elements, you know, like backing the miners in uh, 73, 74, it, it is a voice that is interesting in its... Well, unpredictability is the wrong word. In its determined logic, 
He was, as I said in the piece, a great speaker. And that's the other thing I, I think we do miss now. Not necessarily the case of being always a troublemaker, to be a great speaker. Because uh, actually Blair was a pretty good orator. Clinton was a pretty good orator. And they were, I can't bear the term, but they considered themselves to be, you know, centrists. So it doesn't have to be troublemaking, but I think we miss great speakers at the moment. There is, as I hope Edinburgh will prove and other events, a yearning for people to get together for live stuff and, um, you know, away from Twitter where you're on your own tweeting um, or now when we're listening to podcasts uh, together as we run, bake, drink whiskey or wine or have a cup of coffee, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a kind of yearning for it. And in politics, I think that will, does mean the need for great speakers. Anyway, uh, there we go. Uh, next week, there will be another special and I will record some reflections. I'll be touch wood in Edinburgh by then. I'll let you know how it's all going. So Patreon, so you'll be getting a bonus podcast. It should be there next week if the technicalities work. In the meantime, I'd like to thank some of you who do subscribe because it means I can kind of work uh, with the great uh, team at Podmasters, the great Anne-Marie Luff and Simon Williams and others who helped me get this uh, out. I was going to say to the wider world, you know, as if I was a kind of president of the United States, something completely deluded, you know, in a car heading up to the Lake District. But I want to thank, anyway, Angus Thomas, Simon Brunskill, Simon Lockyer, Linda Morgan, John McIntosh, Ben Heath, Stephen Jordan, Richard Blackburn, Gillian Charlesworth, Philip Rowe. I recognise so many of the names. I feel I know you all intimately. If I had a great dinner with someone who uh, I met through the podcast only the other day. It's great, great way. You know, it's, uh, I think it's probably better than, well, Twitter's quite good, actually. Anyway, look, I'm uh, kind of uh, uh, going beyond the remit of this podcast. So, yeah, we'll have a great few days, uh, whatever you're doing. No doubt some of you will be having a break. And if you're walking in the Lake District, I might see you en route to Edinburgh. And, uh, yeah, if you want to join Patreon, uh, there will be a link there as well. It won't break the bank, even in these days of a cost of living crisis. So yeah, thank you very much. There'll be another one next week. Uh, let us know what you think about that, whether you want another troublemaker one or whether we should go to other series on general elections and the relationship between prime ministers and special advisors. I'm just going to pluck out one from each of those before we all return for the pre-election political year. Oh. Anyway, see some of you in Edinburgh. Have a great few days. Bye.